0: Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects, like cracks, saucers, and availability.
1: <laughs> really I'm to. sorry, I'm not here at the moment, I'm, I'm completely <laughs> unavailable. Or, drips, ships and flips, I'm thinking backflips, I'm thinking flip-flopping, but also hips, whips and pips, so we could be doing the history of apples which brings to mind my dear old departed grandpapa, who used to eat an apple in its entirety, pips and all. However, as always, this is to monstrously digress because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, Sam, that the history of love was a special for Valentine's Day, is in fact all about affection and romance, the family and companionship, cultural expression and interpretation, attraction and biology, chemistry and psychology, endurance and expectations, security and commitment, permanence and loss, betrayal and sacrifice, intimacy and passion. Who knew that it was so beautifully (laughs) poetic and complicated? Or that the history of elephants, which is a recent one of ours, is in fact all about Drunken American Behemoths, 18th Century Biological Inquiry, Pachyderms on the Stage, Newsworthy Postmortems, and it's also about early 20th Century Museums and
0: the Duke of Devonshire. Who knew, Sam? <laughs> so much wonderful wonderful stuff who's doing all this talking well the man on the other microphone if history was a block of clay then this man would be a michelangelo sculpting it into a magnificent and towering work of art humanity posed humanity posing for all of us to admire at our leisure to learn from the past from the postures of these statues of history he is professor extraordinaire of early modern british history at plymouth university it's james day Bell. Hello, James. Hello,
1: Sam. And the man not sitting opposite me, because we're social distancing in these grim, grim days of lockdown 3.0 in the UK. Well, let's just say if he were a ...posing-related historian. He'd only be the historical equivalent of David Gandy. So ripped is his historical six-pack. So pumped is his knowledge of the past. So agile and lean is his historiographical prowess. (laughs) So elegant is the swagger of his archival pose. So rugged and lean is he. Yes, you've guessed it. Is the famous historical adventurer himself... Dr Sam
0: Willis. Thank you and hello everyone. We are doing posing. This is definitely one of yours James. It's not. Do- you said <laughs> you wanted to do the pose like puddles. They is came
1: out of nowhere. You suddenly said we're doing puddles and posing and I thought okay I've got nothing on either of those subjects. But then I went off to the Daybell archives and the reference library and plucked uh, several things off my shelves, and for me, posing uh a la Madonna striking a pose is going to be taken in two ways i'm going to look at it from the perspective of the poser and and sort of lavish male posing. so think of this in terms of you know the early modern catwalk you know so people who are posing the other is actually the process of posing for. Uh, photographs or in this case I'm going to be talking about the posing for paintings, the family paintings and how we can look at posed family portraits across history as sources for the study of the family. That's my two little uh, angles into posing. Where are you going with your
0: posing, Sam? Uh, Let's start off in Italy, shall we? Let's start in Italy. Have you ever spent much time in Italy, James? I love Italy. It's one of my favourite, favourite,
1: favourite countries. The pasta, the people, the sun, the antiquities. Um, Oh, I can't get enough of Italy. And in fact, we were due to go to Italy for a long period of time uh, last summer and couldn't go because of COVID. So I'm th- I'm longing, I am thirsting for Italy. Yes.
0: Hmm. I might go back there soon as well. I haven't been to that many places. I've been to uh, kind of around the coast from Venice to uh, Trieste hmm. and I've spent some time Uh, In Florence, and I was there for maybe three weeks or so, um, um, a few years ago now, uh, making a film about how the Italians protected their art from the Nazis. Um, It's a particular problem in Florence because you've got a city that is completely stuffed with Renaissance art. Some of the most magnificent things that you've ever seen. The background to this, of course, is that uh, the the Nazis were were were, were brutal in their acquisition of art from countries which they rampaged through. Hitler, notoriously, is a failed artist. Um, He thought he'd been cheated out of of being an artist. He was twice failed at the entrance exam for the prestigious Vienna School of Art. Anyway, uh, one of the things that the Nazis did is they wanted to, certainly inspired by Hitler, he wanted to create an enormous Führer Museum in his hometown of Linz in Austria. And in July of 1940, he authorises someone called Alfred Rosenberg. Um, uh, It's not a Jewish name. He was a a committed anti-Semite. must have been to have got that far up the the Nazi ranks. Anyway, he was... given the job of officially seizing masterpieces from conquered parts of Europe. He had a fantastic job title. He was custodian of the entire intellectual and spiritual training and education of the party and of all coordinated associations. How about that for a job title, James? Um, obviously, the Italians were very worried about what was going to happen um, to, to to the, the, the wonderful works in, in places like the Uffizi Gallery. Uh, and I went to a castle about an hour or so outside of Florence, called um where a lot of works were kept uh, reasonably safe um, from the uh, advancing Germans when they actually kind of took control. Uh, they included Botticelli's La Primavera, uh, Giotto's Madonna di Ognissanti, and Ghirlandio's Adoration of the Kings. But these are all lot, very large, some of these paintings, but they are at least... Um, movable. They are vaguely transportable. Which brings us, James, to what I want to talk about, because I'm going to be talking about uh, Michelangelo's David, which is in no way portable. It is utterly enormous. It's made out of marble, and it's probably one of the most famous poses in the history of art. Um, Made by Michelangelo, the very famous Italian sculptor, painter, real Renaissance man, um, he was born and brought up in, in Florence and he was in his early 20s when he's commissioned to create uh, the David. It's a it's one of a series of statues which is going to be positioned along the, the roof line of the east end of Florence Cathedral. But instead, it actually ends up in a public square. I think that's probably because it's so utterly enormous. Uh, it's a magnificent thing. It's all about David, as in David and Goliath from the Bible. So he's a young shepherd um he, he he becomes a he's a musician uh, he later kills goliath who's who's the the champion of of their enemy he becomes the king of 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 uh, israel and judah so a very important person um and politically david is important f- uh, for florence they they like the idea of of a of a of a giant slayer they like the idea of being seen as a powerful kingdom from from of small stature just going to talk briefly about the pose of the David, um, and then going to come back to to how it was looked after during the war. One of the interesting things about Michelangelo's version of David, of course, there have been other sculptures of David, but they're all shown usually with David being victorious over the head of Goliath. Goliath, at some point, is usually there in the statue, but Michelangelo doesn't do this at all. He omits the giant. Altogether, he's actually David in this this uh, this pose is depicted before his battle with Goliath. You can see him. It, it, there's a sense of movement in the statue. He's tense. He's ready for battle. He's made his decision that he's going to have to fight this giant. Um, you can see the veins bulging in his right hand. His left holds the sling. It's draped over his shoulder, um, all the way down his back to his his right hand, which holds the the handle of the sling. It's a very distinctive twist in the body, uh, which is uh, it gives a sense of, of of David being about to move, um, and it's also made um, with with a technique called contrapposto, and this is describing a human figure who's standing with most of its weight on one foot, and that means that the shoulders and the arms twist off axis from the hips and the legs, and it makes perfect sense if you actually just have a quick look at a statue of David, and you'll realise that his hips and shoulders are are on opposing angles, different angles, and they give a a slight curve to the entire torso. Um, It's one of the most recognised works of art um, of of the the Italian Renaissance, and it was very famous at the time. It was respected at the time... um, and there was a lot of comment on about how he, how it was wonderful that he'd actually managed to bring back to life someone who was dead. It really made me think of um, a lot of the uh, uh, stuff you can now see on YouTube. Um, I've actually just done this recently for the Mariners' Mirror podcast, James. We brought Nelson back to life from his I death I saw box. it. It looked amazing. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Um, brilliant. It made me realise that, that um, the, the whole uh, uh, sculpture... Um, the way that it was commented on at the time was actually very similar to, uh, to 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 the you know so I think the impact that we get now if someone actually makes a, a marble sculpture of someone who lived in the past and looks like it's full of movement. Um, yeah, I've noticed this oh, this
1: sort of thing all over social media. People sort of animating sculptures and
0: animating paintings and sort of making yeah, them the, move. The animation really lifelike, is a new thing. isn't it? Yeah, that's happened. Yeah, some of them are terrible, but uh, the animating side of it is one of the things. We, we just, we used the, the um, it was actually a plaster mask taken from life rather than death, even though it looks like a death mm. mask. But um, you can now get artificial intelligence software and it will turn anything that resembles a face in, into something that looks much more photorealistic as a human. Anyway, we did that with Nelson. If you want to have a look at it, look at uh, the Mariners Mirror podcast on YouTube. But here we are, here we've got Michelangelo recreating David from the bible and he's done it in marble and the the, the thing about this statue is it, it's it's such a famous pose it's all so full of movement they couldn't however move this statue full of movement um in the second world war with the threat of the germans so what they did is they they encased it and several other very famous statues in bricks and there are some wonderful um photographs taken at the time uh in Florence of corridors Of they they look like silos or almost like a cairn on top of a on top of a tor on on a moor, Uh, but inside them uh, are these these magnificent Renaissance sculptures, very smooth um, brick. Ten kind of structures, buildings all around them. Um, they worked. They were designed to not only protect them from the Germans, but also protect them from bombing um, and attacks from um, from the Allies when they invaded, and as well. Very uh, anyway, fascinating history, James. There, it's all about protecting uh, protecting a pose. Um, and 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 the particularly famous pose of Michelangelo's David there's so much more i could talk about here particularly um always been really interested in copies of famous poses as well and there was some recent work done on the statue and they found remains of plaster and beeswax between David's toes and they were uh, left there from when a a plaster cast was taken of it in the 19th century and it's from that plaster copy that the one in the V&A museum in London was made which is well, if you want to see the David, you can't get to Florence. Go and go go to the V in London. You see an absolutely cracking copy. Excellent, excellent. We're well, moving from a, a pose in plaster. I want to strike a
1: pose, and I want to talk about early modern male fashion and and posing. Uh, whether it be David Gandhi, who I, I spoke about earlier on in relation to yourselves, Dave, David Beckham, or. Any other sort of male supermodel uh, the male pose or poser has always been in fashion um, i i when I was thinking about this, I was sort of dwelling on a, on an episode that happened to me a few years ago, and I um, where I came into very close contact with a male supermodel uh, who happens to be the brother of a very very good friend of mine uh, and he was he was coming into Exeter to sort of stay over the overnight with his uh with his sister and um and was super jet lagged, having flown in from somewhere glamorous and and I remember uh catching a train with him in the very early in the morning and he slept the entire three hour journey and was looking very disheveled uh on the before uh we we set off and sort of just slept. And then as we got off the train at Paddington, it's just suddenly just looked so elegant and rugged and chiselled and, and everything. And and meanwhile, I was looking sort of crumpled and tweedy for a day in the British Library. Um, anyway, that's a sort of a little sort of peek into the world of uh, supermodels. Uh, however, what I what I really want to talk about is, is what I've been working on for the last goodness knows how long. Um, uh, and... Uh, which is gloves. Um, so we're back to gloves. But as part of the work that I've been doing on gloves, I've been doing a lot of reading about about clothing and identity and uh, and particularly about masculinity. And I think and I've been reading a lot of case studies and a lot of household accounts, which enable you to reconstruct people's wardrobes. In other words, the sets of clothes that they that they wore. And, of course, the kinds of clothing that you wore tells a lot about how you want to be perceived, tells a lot about your identity. And, of course, part and parcel of this, these kind of sartorial adornments, is basically the idea of of posing and clothing. Um, And there are some wonderful examples. I want to tell you about two particular examples who are real faves from the 17th century, both, intriguingly enough, from Kent, would you believe, uh, so there must be something about um you know feverish record keeping in Kent. Now the first person I want to talk about is a Kentish gentleman called Sir Edward During, uh, who lived between fifteen ninety eight and sixteen forty four. And he's a really fascinating character. He's a an antiquary, so a sort of, you know, collector of historical manuscripts and history. He's a politician. He's a soldier. He's involved in the Civil War, not particularly well. At the opening of the Civil War, he raised a regiment of cavalry for Charles I, but he's plagued by ill health. Um, he's also a great collector of manuscripts, many of which survive either in Maidstone in Kent, in the centre of Kentish studies, as, as it was called, um, or at the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C., which is where I first came across them. And there are autobiographical manuscripts. There are wonderful um, collections of antiquarian works. Also, he his um, the During manuscript of Henry IV, part one, so the Shakespeare play, is in fact the earliest surviving manuscript of any play by William Shakespeare. But what I was interested in, really, was his expense book, which covers the period 16... to 1628 with a couple of sort of very small entries for 1617 and 1618. So you'll remember he's born in 1598. So this is actually the expenditure of him as a fairly young man. And it's at a time when he is at university. Um, And so we're able to see precisely what he is spending his money on. We're able to have a sort of snapshot of consumption during this period and we're able to piece together precisely what he was wearing and what he must have looked like. Now, of course, because it is a book on gloves that I've been doing this, a lot of my attention has been to, to gloves. And over a decade-long period, he purchased over 90 separate items of gloves, so 90 separate purchases of gloves and probably over this period multiple pairs so he's buying all sorts of things and gloves were given as tokens they were given as gifts they were also really lavish pieces of clothing that he wore and they were part and parcel of these elaborate assemblages so in other words a sort of an assembly of clothing to make himself look you know something of a of a dandy and one of the most interesting records is in the months before his marriage to his second wife Anne and he goes up to London to make preparations for the wedding and he buys himself a suit of clothes and this consists of a beaver hat, a hat band, a lace ruff and cuffs and a pair of buck leather gloves fringed with silver also a sort of a, a sort of a beautiful sort of you know matching uh, outfit of of clothes um and i think what you get is the sort of sense of him as a you know wanting to look you know pretty stylish uh during this period and and he's he's very similar to a whole range of of men of that kind of social background, so of the elite, during the early 17th century. And another brilliant example that we have is another Kentish man, this time a parliamentarian. It's a man called James Master. And again, we're able to reconstruct his wardrobe because... ...of his household accounts, which basically cover a 30-year period... ...slightly later than During. This is between 1646 and 1676, during which period... ...he is a fellow commoner at Trinity College, Cambridge. He's a law student at Lincoln's Inn in London. He then returns to Kent as a wealthy bachelor with some fortune... ...lives with relatives... Um, before he gets married in 1666 to the daughters of
0: a, a local. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
1: Gentleman, and what we can do is we can see his spending habits as a as a bachelor at Cambridge, and as a married man. And these are some of the most meticulous expense diaries that I've ever come across. And over this period, you said that Dering bought uh, ninety. Separate purchases of gloves this this guy has bought one hundred and sixty separate purchases, so, as you can imagine, for a book on gloves, it is an absolute gold mine, um, and records of his spending at Cambridge reveal that he is something of a dandy, something of a poser. This is somebody who frequents Newmarket to go and you know he 's keen on sporting and horses and gambling, and throughout these years he 's buying all sorts of you know of accoutrements to dress up his his ability to pose in various sort of suits of clothes he's buying double seamed gloves, perfumed gloves, tanned gloves, black gloves, white gloves, brown gloves, trimmed morning gloves, kid gloves, colored gloves, chamois gloves, amber gloves, gloves for hawking, gloves for shooting, gloves for riding you get the you get the message, but also he gloves are part of a of a fashion statement that he's making, so they're they're bought alongside purchases of ribbon for trimming the things he's wearing, and there's an entry that I think is really striking on the twenty first of may sixteen fifty two where he records payment for two pair of gloves. Four ounces of powder and a pair of tweezers. So he's obviously going out with his fancy gloves. He will have tweezered his facial hair and, and powdered presumably his, his hair so that he's he's looking good. But probably more more telling of his dressing habits of as a young man, wanting to struck a pose, strike a pose around Cambridge is a we're able to reconstruct the clothing that he bought when he'd been up into London and is returning to Cambridge for the new term, Uh, and he buys a, what every fashionable young man about Cambridge would be wearing, um, a lead-clothed cloth suit, which was accompanied by a sword with a scabbard of sear cloth, four pairs of gloves, two of which were perfumed, um, galoshed boots with silvered spurs, black boot tops with gold and silver fringe a hat with a white band plain linen cuffs for the wrists and bands for the neck a diamond ring with 15 stones linen socks ankle worsted socks half silk stockings powder for his hair sweet powder for his linen and 4 ounces of dried rose leaves so this is a you know this is an extraordinary outfit that he's got There And you can just imagine this young man prancing around Cambridge in the mid 17th century, you know, posing along with the other uh, elite undergraduates that he would have found himself there with. So there we are, Sam. There's there's, this male sartorial elegance, masculinity and posing in 17th century Cambridge, reconstructed from early modern household accounts. Wow. (laughs) The book, you're going to love the book. It's 100,000 words, and it's like, it's, I'm pleased with it. I've been writing it with my very, very dear friend, uh, Sue Broomhall, uh, who's now now in Melbourne, uh, and we're having great fun doing this. I've been reading all about leather, uh, the brilliant work of a superb leather scholar uh, called Mike Redwood, who spent a, a whole lifetime in the, in the, leather and glove industry and is the supremo um, expert on historical leather. I mean, it's an absolutely extraordinary field. We should do something on leather very soon, Sam. Great. I have tons of
0: it. Excellent. After jam.
1: After jam. Oh, my God, we're doing jam.
0: <laughs> no, we're doing, we're doing bad habits
1: next. Oh, we are, we are doing... Yeah, I've yeah. been reading uh, Angela McShane's brilliant work on bad habits and material culture.
0: Yeah. Women behaving badly... Nice. Looking forward, not looking forward to that. Um, I'm going to. I came across a wonderful book. I can talk very quickly about this. Um, it's called Indians Illustrated: The Image of Native Americans in the Pictorial Press by a guy called John Coward, published in 2016. It's brilliant. Well done, John. Really impressed with this. Um, and the whole principle behind this book is that. Uh, Native Americans obviously were and are real, but the Indian is a white invention. And there are various platforms by which the Indian was invented. And the way that we can uh, we, we can understand that is fascinating, looking at all the different sources. And he particularly looks at the, at the images of Native Americans and how they are presented in the press. It's obviously all to do with... Um, when this becomes possible as well it's the advent of the pictorial press so the real change from uh the press being just written words to one where you've got all sorts of they start off with woodblock engravings basically um and it allows it's a it's a complete revolution in marketing in press um all all changed by this this advent in in printing technology so um Here's a pose for you, James. Uh, this is from uh, the 7th of December seventh of December in 1878. It's a full-page engraving. It's on the cover of Harper's Weekly. I'm going to try and describe it to you. It's amazing. Uh, th- in the background are some jagged mountain peaks, and the peaks are poking up into the clouds. There's a kind of a misty swirl of cloud going across the entire centre of the image. And then in the, in the middle is a bare-chested and, I think, bare-bottomed uh, Native American man with wild hair flowing back, a huge stick. He's wearing some fantastic trousers. Um, by his There's a broken, fallen-down tree. He's kneeling on a tree. Uh, by his left knee is a rabbit. He's obviously been recently holding this rabbit in his hand. But he is now holding the leg of an eagle, a massive eagle which has flown down. What he's done is lured towards him by holding up a rabbit, the eagle. He is now holding the leg of the eagle in his left hand and with his right he is, he is posed holding a stick upon which he is now going to lay into the eagle to kill the eagle, and he's going to do so to get hold of the eagle's feathers. It's an incredible contest, basically. In the shadows of a lofty mountain, there's a prize involved here, the prize of which is the magnificent feathers of the eagle which um, there's a bit of a commentary on this in in Harper's Weekly and it says that those feathers are so dear to the heart of every Indian. He uses them for many purposes to decorate his headdress, his robes, his leggings and to give accuracy to the deadly flight of his arrows. For the latter purpose, they are split lengthwise. They are rarely used whole in decoration. The Indians displaying considerable skill in combining portions of differently coloured feathers so as to produce an effect pleasing to the barbaric taste so bear in mind here what we've got is it's a front cover and you've got this powerful indian war- warrior he's in the midst of a violent quest i think is probably the right word um and you've got a contest here between a uh, proud american um he's, he's being depicted as savage and you've got a wild and dangerous predator and it's been chosen specifically. This is why it's important. It gives a mythic sense of the kind of the wilderness, the wildness of Western life. And the editors of this journal are hoping that it's going to capture the public's imagination, and then hopefully they're going to sell a few more copies. Um, we know that this seems largely imaginary. Historians have done loads of work on it um and it's more than likely based on a thrilling but uh, a second-hand tale of um adventure uh, with uh, american uh, native americans being witnessed by by uh, by white americans um so there's a, a very kind of lurid uh, graphic description of it and they think it's based on that but the details are most likely fictional um it's important that the uh, the native american is is attacking this bird with a stick instead of with a rifle or with a bow it's an act of bravado it displays his prowess it's a feat of daring do it's all it's all very impressive stuff so what we've got here right is a is a, is a a representation of a good indian and by no means was this the only way that indians Uh, as described, were represented in the press at the time. They could be noble savages. They could be proud, brave, strong, sort of unsullied by the evils of the civilised world. But in other occasions, very clearly, Native Americans are presented as being treacherous, as being bloodthirsty savages, as being primitive people um, who are very much on the wrong side of history and that they're a menace to civilised, honest, God-fearing, white people. The conclusion of all of this is that you can look at illustrations of Native Americans as an important source of information about Indians and about Indian life but particularly about the establishment of stereotypes of visual tropes I think uh, in in the popular imagination it helps you understand how and why Native Americans came to be seen in in narrowly conceived ways, and there's a a wonderful quote here from the historian Robert Birkhofer, um and he wrote a book called The White Man's Indian in 1978, and he makes the point that Native Americans were real, but the Indian was a white invention. So I've got to chat there briefly, James, about the pose of this this remarkable uh, male Indian, but. Um, th- this book includes such wonderful descriptions of how Indian mothers were were depicted as well. And I'd urge you all to read it. Mm, I had a brilliant, when I taught
1: in the United States, I had a brilliant colleague, Ben Ramirez, uh, who was uh, a member of the local Ojibwe tribe. And I remember him uh, giving a wonderful paper on some of the portraits of the um, Indigenous um, tribal leaders uh, there, and the sort of wonderfully posed um, sort of portraits there, uh, really sort of noble portraits uh, when they were sort of negotiating all the treaties mm. around the great lakes region, so yes, wonderful. I want to just talk very briefly um, about about portraits as portraits and posed portraits. And the way in which we read them as historians when we're looking at at the family, and I think this this crops up in in approaches to the history of the family, which we can study in all sorts of ways. But one of the one of the most visual and appealing uh, depictions that we have is is representations of people in the sixteenth and century painted in particular sort of family poses, and I think that's a period certainly in. In England, early modern England, when we get really realistic portraiture for the first time, Um, and you think of examples like Holbein's uh, portrait of Thomas More and his family, and you've got all of Thomas More and and his learned, uh, very scholarly and highly educated, classically trained daughters. So it it records the, the sort of classical learning of this humanist scholar. Uh, and great sort of political figure um, who very you know tragically was was executed by a tyrannical Henry VIII, um, and also the the way in which um, the family is depicted in say for example the family portrait of Lord Cobham and his family with the with the children around the table holding various things, and I think one of the difficult things is how we actually interpret that. Because here, the act of posing, the act of actually sitting down and posing for something, what it does is it immediately puts a barrier up between you actually knowing what the reality of life is like, because it is posed. It's rather like looking at a a selfie nowadays and sort of thinking, oh, those, those teenagers, they're having such fun, when basically what they're doing is they're on their phones, in their rooms, by themselves taking selfies and not doing much else um and sort of being slightly sort of tongue in cheek but you get you get the sort of the the thought about this however having said that what it does tell us about these sort of neatly posed pictures is it tells us about how the family wants itself to be represented and I think that's really that's really crucial. And I've been reading a couple of things. Um, I was having a look at the wonderful catalogue, the Dynasties exhibition that many many years ago uh, was on in London. And the Dynasties exhibition was a wonderful exhibition of Tudor and Stuart. Portraiture, And this was a time when this is a long time ago now, actually, because I was doing my MA at the University of Reading on the English Renaissance politics, patronage and literature. And the wonderful team who taught us on that took us up to London to see this uh, this exhibition. And it's full of, of Tudor and Stuart portraits across the ages, themed in various ways. And one of the seminal portraits there is, as I said earlier on, it's this picture of William Brooke, 10th Lord Cobham, and his family, which was painted in 1567. We'll pop this up on our website, but while you are listening to this, if you're anywhere near any device that enables you to Google this up, uh, other there are other search engines out there, Google up William Brooke, Lord Cobham, family portrait, and you will have up in front of you the most terrific portrait of a family sitting around a table. So it's a table with a white tablecloth on it. There is a parrot on it. There's all sorts of food. There are, you know, all sorts of ornate plates. And around it are one, two, three, four, five, six children and three adults and husband and wife next door to each other. And then in the background, there is a Latin motto, so it's quite an extraordinary piece here. Um, William Lord Brook, William Brook, Lord Cobham, was Lord Warden of the Saint Ports. Uh, he's Lord Chamberlain of Queen Elizabeth's household. He's Lord Lieutenant of Kent. Um, you know, he's important man. He's shown here with his second wife, Frances, who's the daughter of Sir John Newton, um, a, seated on the far left is a woman who is lady cobham's sister uh, johanna and then around it is is the 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 six children and what's interesting here is the way in which they are being placed and i think some of this it what it does is it shows it shows you know, Tudor thought about how children and parents should relate, and we've got them sitting down at, at mealtime, which you know is really sort of connecting with the Dutch humanist uh, Erasmus's recommendations on education. So, in other words, um, the uh, meal times were not merely about sociability and entertaining and catching up after a hard day; uh, they were, in fact, an occasion for. Inculcating manners, decorum, courtesy, and those kinds of things. So, what we have here is a family meal that is enforcing parental authority over the children, and also it is about hierarchy and order. So, there are several animals that are depicted here. There's a puppy, uh, which is on a child's lap, uh, which apparently stands for Christian aptitude there is a goldfinch as well which is associated with the christ child uh, there is also a monkey uh, which is being restrained which is about mischief and sin inherent in the child and what's really telling is the latin inscription on the the central sort of cartouche at the back which is translated see here the noble father Here the most excellent mother, seated around them, spreads a throng worthy of their parents. Such was once the family of the patriarch Jacob, such the progeny gathered about the pious Job. God grant that the line of Cobham beget many offspring, such as Joseph, and flourish like the seed of Job restored. Much has been given to the noble race of Cobham, Long may their joys endure. So it's a really sort of, you know, it is a really posed piece that is really about lineage and heritage, and you know, the give, presenting the family in a particular in a particular light. So there we are, Sam. There is the the pose, the posed portrait. As an entry point for studying the history of the family in the 16th and 17th century. Who knew that we would get to there with
0: posing? Yeah, wonderful stuff. I hope you all enjoyed that. I did hugely. Um, I think this all started off with us saying we were going to be doing uh, what we're not going to be doing, but we could do uh, cracks, sources, and availability. Um, I, I, I don't want to forget availability, James. I think I would like to do the history of availability. <laughs>
1: I think I'm unavailable for that one, just to um, uh, return Um, to the podcast. Thank you
0: all. Thank you all, everyone. Um, Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Doctor Sam Willis, And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast. It is excellent. But if you want to follow
1: me on social media, I am on at James Dable on Twitter. And the podcast on Twitter is at UnexpectedPod. We are also... Elsewhere on social media, we're on Facebook, so you can befriend us or like us there. Uh, we're also on Instagram, and you can check out everything that we've been doing on our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com.
0: Yeah, that's it for now, guys. I'm looking forward to being back in the studio again soon. Cheerio! Bye, guys! Take care!